0: Hi, I'm Katrina Ingram. Welcome to Back to School Again, the show for midlife learners recorded at the NorQuest College Innovation Studio. We talk with midlife learners about their educational journey, sharing their stories about how they are balancing the demands of school, work and family and where they hope their educational pursuits will take them. Welcome to Back to School Again, a show for midlife learners. I'm Katrina Ingram and I'm here at NorQuest College in their tricked out podcast studio, which is part of the Innovation Studio, where all kinds of cool digital content and offline collaborations take place. I'm excited to bring you another season of this podcast and I wanna thank NorQuest College for being on board once again to make that possible. The last year has been one of the busiest times of my life, but also one of the most rewarding. I've been working on my Master's in Communications and Technology at the University of Alberta. This is a program that dives deep into how the technologies we use to communicate shape our culture, our lives, our stories, and fundamentally ourselves. At least that's my take on it. My guests today may have their own interpretations of the program. Joining me today are two of my MACT colleagues, Aretha Graytricks and Karina Ludgate. I'm going to let them introduce themselves in more detail, but before we do that, I want to set a little context. While most of the people in our program have full-time jobs, both Aretha and Karina are self-employed entrepreneurs. That adds a whole other level of intensity to balancing school and work, because when you're running your own company, you are it. There isn't always backup to get things done, your clients don't necessarily care about your big school project being due at the same time as their project, and ultimately, it's your reputation on the line. I've had a front row seat in watching this balancing act, and I have a lot of questions about how they made it work. And of course, we'll talk about our MACT experiences too. So let's get started.
1: So my name is Aretha Greatrix. I am a Mac student, so I'm getting a master's in communication and technology, and I am a business owner. I am a filmmaker, so I make films, and
0: I technically own two production companies at the moment. Wonderful, and how about you, Karina?
2: Uh, I am also a fellow Mac student doing my master's um, at the University of Alberta, and I also own a company called Henrik Branding Co., and so we do branding and communications for small to mid-sized businesses in Western Canada.
0: Wonderful. Well, let's start with talking about your journey into entrepreneurship. Aretha, what made you decide to start a company? So I originally worked
1: for a nonprofit and I was teaching youth filmmaking. So basically it was like teaching like indigenous youth, like how to share their own stories and how to do filmmaking. So we brought in like filmmakers and I had actually taken like a certificate in digital and interactive media from Nate a long time ago. And it was to be a web designer, but a portion of it was actual media. So they showed us how to like film, write a script and like, you know, how to do the technical things, like actually work the cameras and like sound and stuff. So I was like, oh, I actually know how to do this stuff. So I kind of produced these videos with these youth, and I'm like, I forgot I actually liked this. So um, when I was going to school, my my goal was to be a storyteller, and so for me, that was my that was always my goal. And then um, while I was going to school, um, or after I graduated, I basically like found a way into a job and working for the Alberta government in education. Like they called me for an interview for a job that I don't remember applying for like at all. (laughs) It's just like, oh, yeah, we saw we we had your resume. I'm like, when did you get my resume? I don't even remember applying for this. But I went and they gave me the job. So then I worked for Alberta Education for like two years. And it was pretty stressful. It was like, it's really hard working for government, And there's so many bureaucracies and like, like gatekeepers that you have to go through. And uh, it was just after a while, I was like, you know what, I know I'm getting paid well here and I'm getting like benefits and all that stuff. And like, you know, a pension, but I'm not happy. So I was like, I really wanted to be a storyteller. Why did I forget that? So I left my job and decided that I was going to be a filmmaker full time. Cause at that point I was kind of doing it like off the side of my desk in the evening and my spare time. And so I was like, you know what, I'm, I'm going to give it a try. I'm going to see what I can do and see if I can just be a filmmaker full time.
0: Wonderful. And Karina, I know you actually had a business prior to this one. Tell us about that and also how and why you started Henrik Branding.
2: Yeah, so um, before starting Henrik, we ran, um, my former business partner and I ran a branding and communications company as well for about four years and we started that um right out of school. So my, my second undergraduate degree is um, from McEwen and Communications and that's where I, I met my former business partner. And so we did that for about four years and um, just decided to go separate ways. And so I loved the work that we were doing and uh, I didn't really want to stop. My plan was always to, to continue in this industry. Um, and so I started the company on my
0: own. Great. Well, you know, there's a lot of people who dream of the entrepreneurial life and being their own boss. What would you say is the most rewarding thing about being self-employed? And also, what is the scariest thing about being self-employed?
1: You definitely get to make your own hours. So like if I want to just leave or or like, let's say there's something during the day, I can just rearrange my schedule so that I can be there. Or if like for some reason I want to like just go somewhere, like on vacation, like I can just figure it out. But that's also the scariest part because especially when you're making money in projects that aren't constantly coming in, like I basically pay myself and then put a whole bunch of money in my savings and then kind of work out like, okay, I have enough to live off of for like three months, six months. And I try to make it as long as possible. But sometimes once the project's done and you're getting closer and closer where you're like, okay, I have one month left. And you're like, oh goodness, I need to find a project like yesterday so those are the moments that you're like okay i i either need to be more consistent or yeah or just finding some way to to make sure i have money coming in what
0: about you karina
2: yeah i aretha nailed it i think um not having regular income is for sure one of the more challenging aspects uh figuring out cash flow in a business especially if you have like subcontractors or employees to pay um, before you pay yourself. That's also a challenging aspect of it. Um, but it is incredibly rewarding when you get to be solely or a huge portion of the um, of the individual responsible for the work that you're producing. Um, you answer to yourself and, and maybe your clients or whoever you might be mm-hmm. producing a film for, in Aretha's case, um, and and nobody else. So that's probably my favorite part is, is you know, being in control and having the power to to make the decisions.
0: That sounds amazing, but being responsible for your business and also getting things done for school, I imagine that could present some real challenges. Were there any times where you had a big client project that was due at the same time as a big school assignment, and and how did you navigate that and balance that? Not very well.
1: (laughs) Both both Spring Institutes that we have, because we have Spring Institute every year, which is like three weeks that we're supposed to take off. And I'm like, I'm a business owner. That's impossible. <laughs> um, and both times I was working on like m- major documentaries at the time. So even when I had like hired additional staff to be like, hey, I'm going to be in school. So unless like a building is burning, don't contact <laughs> me. But buildings were burning so <laughs> there were times that I was like on my lunch break or on my break like on the phone going like okay what's the problem happening and like just de-escalating situations and like fixing things and yeah like even in class sometimes I'd be on my computer and then of like, I would get this like urgent message and I'm like okay like I can't leave but and trying to fix them like while I'm in class and yeah it yeah it wasn't a good <laughs> I'd like to say it was perfect but no it was yeah
0: how about you, Karina?
2: Yeah, spring institute is the most challenging part of it. J- like throughout the rest of the school year, when we can work, uh, kind of work at our own pace, and everything is online, it's it's pretty manageable. Like you do schoolwork whenever you can. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really matter what time of day you're doing it at. Um, but the first spring institute, I like Aretha was like, well, I don't have business. Like I can't stop working for three weeks. Um, and I honestly was like, ah, it'll be fine. It won't be that much work. And that was a huge mistake. Uh, so I learned my lesson last year and this year I, I ended all my projects or as much as I could in April. And then I just had a few of my like retainer clients for May. Um, but I, again, like I had additional help and then started new projects in June when Spring Institute was over. There was like a tiny PR crisis in the middle of class that I had to step out for. But otherwise, actually, it was like very manageable this year compared to the first Spring Institute. I yeah. learned my lesson.
0: <laughs> Good for you for <laughs> learning that lesson. Yeah. Um, and that's a nice segue into the the next question I have. is I was wondering if you ever had to say no to clients or what you do to set boundaries um, on your business in order to prioritize school. And I, I imagine that's probably pretty hard if you're in the middle of a big documentary.
1: Yeah. Well, especially so majority of the projects that I have done have been my projects. So they're projects that I created and they're my intellectual property. So at the same time, they're also my babies. (laughs) So it's like really hard to be like, okay, do these things. And then seeing them do things like, okay, but not that way. (laughs) (laughs) And, uh, but there were, there were a couple where, um, because I've kind of grown a reputation of doing things, I've been getting a lot of calls from people asking me about producing their films. And because Last year, like, well, I took two courses in the in the winter time, I did two music videos I started um I started a documentary, and then I also actually am a graduate research assistant for our professor. so I also work on um, building this digital literacy camp um, that I was working on creating these instructional videos for. That was way too much. I realize <laughs> that now. like I thought, oh, it's fine, I can do this. oh and I was doing an engagement thing for Alberta. Um, the university of alberta health branch we were doing these engagement videos and i was helping doing engagement like to basically assess them and see what, how they can improve it for indigenous families and yeah there is i i realized very early on that that was too much because in the spring institute started and i was already exhausted from that and so yeah i just it was one of those things where like just taking on too many projects and and the funny thing is, there were three other projects that were pitched to me, and I said no to because I knew it was going to be too much. And I'm like, why didn't I say no to the other ones? <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've I've had to definitely turn down some and and let them know that I, like, I I needed a break. Um, yeah, I, there were a couple other ones that have been have been pitched to me since, and I'm like, you know what, I was so busy during the winter term and the Spring Institute that I'm actually just really exhausted, so I'm not taking on any new projects until September. But yeah. Yeah.
0: I imagine, though, it can be hard to say no. Like, I, I think that sometimes there's this fear that, will there be another project? I know. Have you experienced that at all, Karina, in your business?
2: So, for me, I was pretty lucky. Like, people who approached me in March or April, um, when I knew like the Spring Institute deadline was drawing near, I was able, they were really good about pushing it off. So I said, you know what, like I have these three weeks in May, so can we start June 1st or whatever? Um, so I didn't actually have to say no to anything, which was really nice. But yeah, that is definitely like a constant fear as a business owner is saying no to a project and then and then missing out on an opportunity to make money. But I feel like um, the more experienced you get, you know when those no's, are going to be a benefit to you, and in the long run, it it ends up working out for the better Uh, rather than taking on a project maybe that wouldn't be a good fit or that would would exhaust you if you were already (laughs) exhausted in Aretha's case.
0: Sometimes it's smart to say no, in other words. Mm Um, Aretha, you wrote this quote in the questionnaire that I asked all of my guests to complete, and it really resonated with me. You were, you were talking about having to get over the illusion of a stable job before you started your own company. And I want to ask both of you about this because there's so many people, and I'm one of them, who think about maybe I'll become an entrepreneur one day. But they're scared because it feels so unstable and so uncertain. However, we're also living in these really uncertain times when nothing is really stable. So I'm wondering how you each tackled that fear and overcame the illusion of a stable job. Karina, do you want to comment on that first?
2: Yeah, I think having a good support system behind you, I don't think I would be able to do what I do if it wasn't for my husband and his constant support of me trying to do all these crazy things that I want to do. So that definitely helps uh, eliminate some of that fear. Um, And then the other thing is whenever I have those days and you have them no matter how far along you are on your entrepreneurship journey is – Those days when you're like, oh, my God, what am I doing? I should just go get a nine-to-five job. This is crazy. Um, But I remind myself what the alternative is. And the alternative, the nine-to-five thing, reporting to someone maybe working in a bureaucratic environment, is not my personal um, choice. It doesn't fit with me. It doesn't fit with my personality. I've tried it multiple times. I've worked um, in government. I've worked uh, for the legislature. I've worked for the city. Like, I've done... I've done those things and it just doesn't work for me. And so I just remind myself what the alternative is. And I think that also helps kind of eliminate some of the fear and anxiety that that goes with uh, the unstable situation sometimes.
1: Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly the same thing cuz I know so my mother worked for the federal government for like 30 years and she was so unhappy. <laughs> she would come home and just like offload anything like all the all the stress that she had from work and and she had to take stress leave so many times from work because it was just it was just so hard and I was like I, I don't want to live life to just get by. I want to live life to be happy and enjoy the things that I like. So I was like, okay, how do I how do I make that happen? And yeah, I definitely have those moments where I'm like, okay, maybe I should just get a nine to five job. But yeah, because w- once you're, usually when you're done, like nine to five, like as soon as five o'clock hits, usually you're done, mm-hmm. right? And then you have your weekends and stuff and you have like free time. Whereas when you're an entrepreneur, like, it's 24 <laughs> seven, like you do have time off, but like really anything can happen at any time that you need to be like, okay, today I need to give like a full day of something. And so, but yeah, but like stability I think is is very, um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things where it's like, stability is what you make it. Mm-hmm. And I think like, if you wanna be stable and wanna be working all the time, like, yeah, I could have taken all those jobs that I turned down. Um, but I know I had to look at like, okay, if I turn them down, like, will I still be able to sustain myself? And it was like, okay, I still could. So it was it was easy to say no.
0: Yeah, I think it's that there is that illusion of the stability. And, and once you can kind of get past that and just realize that maybe life is just inherently in, unstable and, and just roll with it, it seems like you've both been able to accomplish that. Um, Aretha, I wanted to dig into a little bit more about your business and learn more about what you do. I actually had a chance to watch one of your uh, films recently about the Sixties Scoop. Can you tell us a bit more about that project?
1: Yeah. Um, so I um, I knew that the apology was going to happen because at, in Alberta, they were having an apology um, where the Alberta government was giving um, an apology to the 60 Scoop survivors. And I had known about it because as a summer student, I worked for a nonprofit called... Um, Oh, what is it called? I want to say, no, that's a different one. Um, yeah, so I worked for a nonprofit, and they specifically worked with ch- children in care, and um, Indigenous children in care. And so and all the founders were 60 Scoop survivors. And so I learned about it, and they called it 60-70 Scoop, because even though it's 60 Scoop, it's a little misleading, because it actually goes from, like, 1951 to 1979. And there's actually a big argument that it never actually did end, because we're all overrepresented in in child care right now so really it it hasn't really ended um and so I knew about it and so and I knew about this apology that was going to happen and I knew people that were part of it and so I just went down and thought okay I'm going to film some stuff while I was there and then this opportunity to get this grant to create a documentary had happened and I had already gotten some footage from the apology so I thought okay I'm going to move forward and do this because I think um even when i even when i made the documentary i'm still talking to people who are like the sixty scoop what is that and there was a big public apology that happened so how do we still not know that it's happening and how do we um, how do, how do we then present it in a way that you get information so for me my goal was to make it a way that it was um, informative that could be shared with as many people as possible and hopefully build more awareness around the 60 scoop and the high rates of children especially indigenous children being represented in child care so yeah so that's why I created the documentary and I made it so that it was easy enough that could be shown in public but could also be shown to like schools so I wanted to make it very
0: informative it's a great documentary. And I, I did have that learning myself where um, I was surprised by how young some of these people were, because when I think of the 60s, that's a long time ago. And yet some of the people that you talk to, um, they're not really that old, and they must have been part of that latter Part of, of the scoop uh, into the 70s and, and maybe even the 80s. So, yeah, it was a great doc. Um, one of the things I think people think about when they hear documentary filmmaker or writer, they have this very romantic notion of what that is all about. And I'm wondering if you want to maybe give us a bit of a, a reality check. What's it really like to be a documentary filmmaker?
1: Well, it's really being like a storyteller. And I think um, there is a lot of actual work that goes into it because. Like, when I tell people I'm a filmmaker, they're like, oh, I have this idea. It's like, that's great. You should keep that. <laughs> and, um, and like, even that I own my own production company, they're like, oh, yeah, we should make this film together. I'm like, well, like, do you know what your idea is first? Because there's actually a lot of work and money that goes into the prep part of it. So you should know that. And you shouldn't be telling people your ideas because that's your intellectual property. And you want to hold on to that. (laughs) So, yeah, I I don't know. It's kind of like romanticized to the point where I think they think that I, or that I make tons and tons of money. Like some people are like, oh, but you own your production company. I'm like, yeah, and I also pay other people. (laughs) Like I might get huge grants. That's great. But like even in the grant, there's there's a pay system, which is above the line, below the line. So above the line, you only want to spend 20%. And then below the line is like, yeah the rest of the percentage and so I get paid above the line so I mean whatever grant I get I can only do 20% but even then there's four other positions in there so I'm one of the four (laughs) so at the end of the day I'm usually being paid probably less than sometimes I pay like my technical people so yeah it's it's one of those things where they assume that like oh you I've heard you got like this $50,000 grant it's like yeah, and I get like a small percentage of that. <laughs> Rest of it, I, get, I pay to other
0: people. Yeah, there is always the reality of accounting and there's always the real- reality of paying staff and kind of the, the things you just have to do when you're running pretty much any kind of business. Mm-hmm. Well, Karina, let's talk a little bit about your business. Um, I know that you're a branding expert and as someone working in the world of branding, what misconceptions do you find that people have about branding?
2: Yeah, well, obviously the first thing is people assume branding like what I do is is what a graphic designer does and create logos and um, visual identity systems, and that's certainly part of like one of the services that I offer. I don't myself do it; I work with some really talented graphic designers in Edmonton um, who do that portion of it, um, and for sure visuals are really really important. That's how people. Uh, Most people identify a brand, um, but it's definitely, it's only a small piece of it. A lot of it is built around how you communicate um, the experience that you provide, whether it's an online experience or whether it's in person in a brick and mortar store or at an event. Um, It's kind of the personality, the way people understand you, Uh, a lot of it nowadays has to do with the purpose. behind your company and, and what you're trying to do to um, give back or to do something greater than just sell products or services. So,
0: And what does that process look like when you're working with a client? How do you work with them specifically to be more effective at building their brand?
2: Yeah, well, it depends on where they're at. So um, if you're kind of a new startup business, uh, we kind of help you create all of the foundational communication pieces that would go into um a brand essentially um visual identity is usually part of that um everything I do is founded in communications because that's my background so a lot of it is writing based um content based but also some of the creative stuff so um helping with art direction for photo shoots um being kind of a project manager and all the moving pieces if I'm working with graphic designers photographers videographers that kind of thing Um, and then on the strategy side, so helping clients be able to execute on a brand. So once it's kind of been built, um, helping them figure out, okay, now how are we going to disseminate this to our target audiences? Um, For brands that are a little bit more vintage, uh, maybe they're looking to rebrand, maybe they have like a big anniversary coming up and they want to um, revamp things. It's uh, still a similar process of kind of discovery and figuring out, okay, well, what's unique? What differentiates you? Um, and, and again, helping them maybe redevelop some of their messages um, around who they are and what they're trying to do. Um, sometimes it's related more to employees. So it can be kind of employee branding, um, internal branding, so looking more at like how um, your staff experience your company, what's the culture that you're trying to provide to people, and how does your brand how's your brand infused in all of those things. So not just external but also looking internally too.
0: I think that's a really interesting area, employee branding. It is, yeah. um, just how our employees embody are an embodiment of the brand. Um, I'm curious about um, how, how has that been received? Have you been doing a lot of work in that area or, or where are people at with respect to employee branding?
2: Yeah, it's definitely like an up and coming area within the branding industry. I think more people are recognizing how critical it is uh, because your staff or your employees are your front line of your brand. Very often they're the first and last connection point between your customer. And your business, and so I think more and more businesses are understanding how critical it is for your uh, employees to understand who who you are, what your what your brand is, and and then how they can best deliver that experience um, to the to the consumers. So it's not yet like a very highly requested service, I would say that I have yet. But it's getting there. And it is something that always is part of the, the branding conversation anyways. Um, I don't just look at the external. We we usually look a little bit internally as well. Well, let's
0: get into uh, talking about school. Let's talk about the MACT program. Um, I know this past year was really tough. Um, it feels like every moment outside of work was spent reading a paper or writing a paper. At least that's how it felt for me. Um, let's start out with what brought you to MacT in the first place. What do you hope to get from this program? Aretha, I'll start with you.
1: So when I, when I started, so I actually looked into the program because I had um, people that I went to my undergrad with had taken it previously, and so I had never heard of it before. And then when they were taking it, they were like, oh, yeah, I'm taking this program. I'm Like, oh, I was looking into it. And I actually started looking into it when I was at, the, at um, working for Alberta Education, because a part of it is, is if you can tie it into your work, they can help pay for it. And so I was trying to make it work. <laughs> but then when I quit, I'm like, oh, fine. And then so I decided to go. And I looked up all the teachers, and I wanted to see what their focuses were. And um, I knew I wanted to start a project, um, like another documentary project on reconciliation, because... That's what some of my previous work had been on, has been documentaries on reconciliation. And so I was like, okay, well, maybe I can work on the research part because I think um, even though I did a little bit of research as a producer and things like that, I haven't actually, like, honed the skill. So I was like, I think this could help me a little bit. So I had a meeting with... um, Rob, um, McMahon, who's one of our professors, Dr. Rob McMahon. And, um, I explained to him what I do and and that I was a filmmaker and he was like, well, no pressure, but I have this project that I'm working on. So if you join the group, I can hire you as a GRA. (laughs) So I knew coming in that he already wanted me to join his project. And, um, um, as a filmmaker, because as part of the digital literacy, they need a filmmaker to actually show the youth how to actually make films, which is something I already did as well too. So, um, and I told him about my project and then he told me that there was a former graduate student who um, instead of submitting a capstone project submitted a series of paintings as her project and so because as a filmmaker he could see if we could have me submit a documentary instead of doing an actual paper and so, um, so we looked into that and yeah that was totally a possibility so I'm like okay so this is something I want to do already and I want to learn this skill so this program kind of fit well into what I wanted to do so it's almost like I'm creating a project but I'm gonna get it I'm gonna get a master's degree at the same time
0: it's amazing I love it when things start with no pressure but (laughs) (laughs) what about you Karina
2: yeah so I've I knew like I always wanted to go back to do more school um, to do a master's and part of the reason for that was um, I am putting this out there, McEwen, if you're listening, I want to uh, be a sessional instructor in the program at McEwen that I took my uh, second undergrad in, in communications. They know that already. Um, <laughs> but so it was kind of like, um, uh, when the time is right or eventually I'll do this, uh, but because I was running the previous business I co-own, um, it was never front and center. Um, And then when things started to kind of go south with that business, I was kind of like, okay, trying to figure out what I was going to do, what my next steps were going to be, because I knew I probably wouldn't have a job (laughs) in a few weeks um, at the end of 2017. And so I was trying to figure everything out. And um, I I just said, well, I had looked at this program previously. It was quite convenient because it was a part-time program, so I could do it while I was working full-time somewhere or Running a business, whichever came first, um, and I—it was very serendipitous because I everything kind of started to unfold. I would say October, November, and the application deadline was December, and so I scrambled to get my references and everything and applied, and I got my acceptance in um, January, and then I didn't—I didn't like say anything. I just kind of I accepted it and I didn't tell anybody. Um, and then when, as we got closer to the first Spring Institute, and it became more of a reality, I kind of started to tell people. But yeah, it's it's really like I'm a very, very big believer in education, both formal and informal. Um, and I would be a, I would or will be a student for the rest of my life if I can, in some capacity. Like I love school, so.
0: It's amazing. This hasn't scared. This experience hasn't scared you away. Oh from God, school. no,
2: no. I'm already looking at PhD programs. My husband's like, oh no. You know, it's funny. <laughs> Me too.
1: Me too. Oh, no. Like I'm. 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 I'm a lifelong learner. I love learning things. I think that's why I like school so much. Is because I actually really like learning things. And um, I, I always laugh because I tell people, I'm like, I'm gonna be. I'm gonna get a PhD because
2: I'm just gonna force people to call me doctor. Exactly, right? <laughs> doctor grade Yeah, sounds really good. Right?
0: I don't know if you've quite convinced me that that's enough to sign up for uh, a PhD. We'll see. What do you we'll mean, see. Dr. Ingram? <laughs> so last season on the show, I talked about our First Spring Institute in episode one and how it was super intense and how we crammed these two courses that normally take 13 weeks into three weeks. And it was all pretty overwhelming. Um, in thinking about your experience last year and then comparing it to this year, how did you find the second Spring Institute?
1: To be honest, it was it was a lot easier because it was not so much work. Like I think I probably spent more time on papers and and reading and writing last year than I did this year because we did a lot of group work. Plus, I hadn't been in school for a while. And I, I mean, I, even though I did write and I did do things, I didn't actually like do academic things. So it was almost like it was like learning to ride a bike again,
0: mm-hmm. where
1: it was like the first couple of weeks, you're like, OK. And then like by the last week, you're like, OK, OK, you're just kind of getting through it. And then this week it was just or this year it was just. Yeah, you had so many group projects. I mean, there was a lot of writing, but you were able to share a lot of the work with other people. And so, it, it yeah, I thought it was a lot easier this this time.
2: Yeah, I, w- I enjoyed this year far more than last year, I think. I mean, I did still enjoy the first year, but I would agree with Aretha. Mm-hmm. The type of work we did in the first Spring Institute was very different. This year, I really enjoyed how focused it was um, on group work, but also on your own capstone project and figuring out those things. So even though you were still <clears throat> writing and, um, and doing and you know, assignments and things like that, it all felt like it was going towards something greater, which is towards your capstone project. So it didn't feel like work as much as, mm-hmm. and maybe it's because you are really hopefully excited about your research question and whatever it is that you're going to be doing. And so you get to do work towards that. So I agree, mm-hmm. I really, really enjoyed this year, yeah.
0: I enjoyed it too, though I did find it exhausting still. I I, I still found it really demanding being in class. Um, five days a week, from early in the morning to late at night, mm-hmm. and then all the group work afterwards. Um, but I think for me, like ha- just knowing you guys from last year and having spent uh, the year online, getting to know everybody, it just made it feel like there was so much more support there. Yeah. Um, so that made it a lot of fun. Um, and I want to segue into that whole topic of support, because one of the best parts of grad school, I think, is the shared experience. Um, I'm going to share just a little bit about our MACT 2018 Facebook Messenger group, not too much though, <laughs> um, because it is a safe space for our cohort to ask questions, we share information, sometimes we vent, we get moral support, and I think we've all had our moments where we just need to rant or have like a mini freak out over something. Um, It's been a real lifeline for me this messenger group and I think for all of us Um, just to give our listeners an example. Here's a typical post. This is something I wrote not too long ago. Anyone else finding this 501 assignment a real slog. I'm usually better at staying motivated but this one feels super tough to buckle down and get the work done. And then after you post that, all of the support texts start coming in, and you remember you're not alone in the world out there with your 3,500-word paper that you need to produce. So what are your uh, most memorable shared experience stories over this past year?
1: Hmm. You know, I would have to say, uh, so so last winter term when I took the two courses and I was doing all that work and and I was doing all these projects – I don't know about you guys, but for me, writing is something that just comes easy to me. So I usually don't have to, like, put a lot of effort into it. And I usually get good grades. <laughs> and so this one course that I was struggling in, it seemed like whatever I did, it seemed like it wasn't doing good. And so I, I started trying to put effort into it and actually focusing on it. And it seemed like I was getting a little bit better, but not that much better and it, yeah, it was the 501 course too. And it seemed like I was like, the more effort I was putting into it, it was like, I, I just wasn't getting far enough. And then the feedback I was getting was like, that's not helpful. <laughs> and so, um, so I was really struggling. And so when we started the Spring Institute, we were all waiting, like we're, there were a lot of us waiting for our grades back. And so, and I know at this point, like I was really struggling in that class. And then I got this email stating that I failed the last assignment. And I was like, but what does that mean? like what does that mean and so we kind of had like a group meeting where we were talking about it and we're like we're like no one's being left behind don't worry about it and then um everyone talked to their TAs I think our our our, um is it the director of our program came and talked to me my my professor talked to me like I didn't tell them yet but they knew because people had already told them and then they were all like it's fine don't worry like we'll, we'll work this out and he's like asking all these questions but like the camaraderie of like no one's being left behind we're all moving forward was like it was like a sense of like oh that's so nice <laughs> I know I might, I might I'm, I'm possibly failing this course but that's so nice <laughs> but I didn't he I don't know what happened but I think I think I should have failed it, but for some reason they just gave me a pass. I'm not. I'm not too sure what happened behind closed doors. I don't know. Well, I, all I know is I passed. So don't I was like, ask okay. any questions. I, yeah, it's I'm all not, good. Just, I'm not <laughs> gonna rock the boat. I'm like, I pass. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm not gonna ask any questions. But for me, that was like that was like a moment where I was
2: like, oh, mm.
1: you guys are great.
2: <laughs> uh, there's there's like too many moments. I don't know if it's unique to our cohort, but I. I'm just continually amazed at how incredible um, our class is, how close we are, and close from, like, day one. I, I, Yeah, again, I don't know if this is unique just to our year or if other years have experienced this, but um, I love, yeah, I love that we have that group chat. I love that we can contact each other, like, whenever um, to ask questions or everyone is willing to help each other out. Whenever someone finds, like, a useful tool online or whatever, we all share it. Um, And I truly love, like, the amazing diversity within our group of people. Like, everybody is from a very different background. There's people from all across Canada, all across the world. um, Yet we all have this, like, one thing in common, and we're all working towards the same, um, you know, kind of goal. So, yeah, I, I don't think I could pinpoint one moment. I think, like Aretha said, the camaraderie is very special, very unique. Like, I, I don't think I've ever had an experience quite like this. I did have an amazing cohort at McEwen as well, I should say. But, um, yeah, and again, every year you sing happy birthday and embarrass the hell out of me. So I also appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. And
0: I, I don't know if every cohort is quite as close a, as we are. Um, I think our cohort's special, it is. I'm just going to go with that. <laughs> um, now this coming academic year, we're all going to be heading into our capstone projects. And this is our major piece of research that takes about six months to complete. Tell us a bit about the research that you have planned. Um, so my, well, mine is, um,
1: mine's a little bit different. Of course, I had to be difficult and do something completely different <laughs> from everyone else and um, yeah mine well is on reconciliation and and that's what I came into the program knowing that that's what I wanted to focus on was reconciliation because just from my perspective and working in the community it's one of those things where it's such a weird word that I've never heard two people define it the same way and it means so many things to so many people but how can you then work on a common goal it means too many things to too many people so that was that was mainly my focus and so I got introduced to the idea of an autoethnography which is basically like self-reflection on the topic itself and 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 how you relate to the material so you basically are the subject of your research and so um, my research question is what is reconciliation and what does it mean what uh what does reconciliation mean to me and what is my role because for me I was really thinking about like what 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 am I trying to say and so for me I was thinking okay what I want to see is change which I want what I want to see is us all moving forward to a way that we can all be very proud to be Canadians and live here and, and everyone's have has a better quality of life and so for that change to happen I'm a strong believer that change happens within and not without so if I can't expect other people to change. I need to figure out what it is that I need to change and what my role is in the process. And so, um, yeah, this, so this whole Spring Institute, that's been my focus it has been developing that and, and, and uh, figuring out how I'm going to do that and how I'm going to then self-reflect and, and figure out that path.
0: Fantastic. Karina, how about you?
2: I actually just had to like think about what my research was. I haven't thought about it in a month. Um, I'm doing obviously something related to branding. um, And so I'm looking at how um, the messaging that brands put out influences or impacts um, consumers' decisions to be loyal to a brand. Or does it not have any impact on it? So I'm looking at um, because, again, in this Spring Institute, we learn kind of more about how narrow the research actually has to be. I want to look specifically at a group of, like, hyper-conscious consumers, so people who are, um, they, ver- they make very uh, conscious decisions about who to buy from. Um, very often it might be related to environmental-type brands or ethical uh, fashion-type brands, um, and so I want to know, you know, what it is about the messaging that these brands put out or, or um, what they do that kind of impacts whether or not people choose to be loyal to them and And maybe I'll figure out that brand loyalty doesn't really exist anymore, which I think is a very real possibility for me to kind of uncover. But we'll see. I'm trying to uncover.
0: Fascinating question. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: We're going to wrap up. But just before we say goodbye, what advice do you have for people who are self-employed and wondering if they could also take on pursuing a degree?
1: Well, I I would say, well, I think for both of us, and it sounds like it, that what we're doing, like pursuing our degree is helping our careers in a way that's moving it forward. So like, even all my assignments, like it's all reconciliation based, it's all Indigenous focus. So even my papers will always have that that lens to it, because I don't want to just write a paper to write a paper, I want to write a paper that's going to help move my business forward, help move my the issues that I want to move forward. And so If you can make that fit together, then it then it then it will work out because even some of the papers that I have, I'm like, oh, I wonder if I could research this and turn this into a project. So I'm always looking for it at that angle. So, I mean, if you can do that, then and it just fits in with your business, it's always I wouldn't say much easier, but more beneficial to you.
2: Yeah, I would 100% agree with that. And the other thing I would say is if you can find a part-time program, unless you're willing to take, like, two years off of work and and just dedicate that to some sort of um, post-secondary or um, graduate degree, I would say then, like, by all means do that. But if you don't have the means to do that, then... Um, Definitely, finding a part-time program, I would say, has been like it, it makes it so much easier to balance. And I think, especially with our program, and again, I can't speak to any any other schools, but I find that the professors are very understanding about the real like the realities of working a full-time job. Having a lot of our our colleagues have families with young children, so um, they're very understanding of all of the realities of life and work and trying to balance all of those things. So. That's been, um, I think, a huge help. So if you can find a part-time program and one that's online too, that's the other thing, Mm -hmm. where it's almost like work at your own pace sometimes, even though there are deadlines. I think that also makes it a lot easier to manage running a business, having time for friends and family and, and school.
0: Fantastic. Great advice. I just want to say thank you so much to the both of you for being here today. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you.
2: Thanks for having us. Thank you.
0: Today's podcast is brought to you by two organizations who deserve top marks for their great work in creating community. I'm talking about ATB Financial and the Alberta Podcast Network. ATB Financial is Alberta's very own homegrown, community-centric financial institution with over 300 locations, including one right here at Norquist College. And the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB Financial, is the place to find amazing local podcasts. Since its launch in 2017, the Alberta Podcast Network has supported podcast creators across this province, championing informative, sometimes quirky, and occasionally life-changing, yes, life-changing, local audio content. I'm proud to be a member and to sing the praises of ATB Financial and the Alberta Podcast Network. That's our show today. I hope you enjoyed it. If you like the show, please give us a rating. It helps other people connect to us. You can reach me at backtoschoolagain.ca or at schoolagainpod on all the usual social channels. I'd love to hear your story. Back to School Again was recorded at the Norquest College Innovation Studio, located on Treaty 6 Territory, the traditional homeland of First Nations and Métis peoples. A huge thanks to our sponsor, Norquest College, for supporting the show and to our talented technical producer, Corey Stroder. Back to School Again is proud to be affiliated with the Alberta Podcast Network. Find out more at albertapodcastnetwork.com. See you next time.